Welcome again to the Radio Bible Chorus. We're continuing our study of Philippians chapter 3. In verse 3, Paul writes, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He said that in a context where he warned the Philippians about men who were promoting Jewish activities, such as circumcision. How are Christians the true circumcision? In yesterday's program, I referred you to Romans chapter 2, verse 28. I want to repeat that passage because it is significant. Paul writes, For he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. Well, this skillful man, more knowledgeable than all the Jews of his generation, the Apostle Paul, explains what the Jews did not understand. They thought a real Jew was one who practiced outward things, who kept all the feast days, who went to the temple, who practiced circumcision, who washed his hands periodically, and did all those externals. But Paul says, true circumcision is something internal. It's inward. And real circumcision is not a matter of the flesh. It's a matter of the heart. It's spiritual. Now, when a person believes in Jesus Christ, he is getting his heart circumcised by faith in Christ Jesus. That is the real circumcision that Paul explains here. And those are the people whom God praises, although men may not praise you. On yesterday's program, I asked, but how are Christians the circumcision? I think that answer comes in Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Jesus Christ. In this passage, the apostle tells us about a circumcision made without hands. Now, if it's made without hands, it can't be physical. It must be spiritual. And how can we be spiritually circumcised? In no other way but by believing in the one who was cut off his life was cut off when he was nailed to that cross and when he died for our sins. And when we believe in him, then the body of flesh which is condemning us is also cut off by the circumcision of Christ. Remember, circumcision means cutting the flesh. But when do we have our flesh cut? It's when the Spirit makes us a part of Jesus Christ. It's when we believe in him. He's the one who causes us to be complete. He's the head over all rule and authority, and you are complete in him, the Bible teaches us. 
So we have our circumcision as far as God is concerned. It's a circumcision of the heart. And God saves us by that faith which brings us spiritual circumcision. Were there many real Jews in the Old Testament? The real Jew was one who had his heart circumcised. Well, in the wilderness, following Moses, there were only a few. According to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, which tells us, they all died in the wilderness because of unbelief. And when our Lord was on earth, were there many real Jews? Did many believe? There were only 120 who gathered after his resurrection. Think of it. Only 120 people after three and a half years of miracles and preaching God's word by the best teacher, by the Son of God. Only 120 people. Well, there may have been more, and perhaps they were in other localities. But Jesus preached in Jerusalem, too. And his crucifixion was there, and his resurrection. And he showed himself after his resurrection to more than 500 brethren at once. And yet there were only 120 at that meeting, which we read about in the early chapters of Acts. Are there many real Christians today in the world? Not nearly as many as there are outward Christians. Now, how can we tell? Paul explains it in verse 3. He said, We are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There are so many Christians who do put confidence in the flesh. They do things, religious things, in order to be approved by God. That's putting confidence in the flesh. The flesh has to do with human effort and human activity. Paul describes the true believer in respect to three attitudes. Worship, glory, and confidence. Now he intends these as contrast with what those Jewish teachers were promoting. First of all, let's talk about worship. Where did Christian believers worship? Is there any record in the New Testament of a place of worship or an order of worship? Jesus taught this in John chapter 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. How do we know what Jesus meant by that statement? The best way is to read the context. And what is the context about? The context is about Jesus at the well, talking to the Samaritan woman. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, which is, by the way, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, 
Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now what is Jesus saying? The day is coming, he said. And he said this in the first century. The day is coming when men will no longer worship in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which was the Samaritan mountain of worship, and they had a temple there, nor in Jerusalem where the Jews had their temple. And he emphasizes that God is a spirit, and wherever men are, they can worship God. Now, he was foretelling our day. We don't go to buildings to worship. It's not necessary to go into a so-called house of God, because it's not a house of God, it's a building. You can worship out on a golf course, or you can worship alongside a river. You can worship on your patio. The problem is, most people don't worship on the golf course or in a boat fishing or on the patio. But God is everywhere because God is spirit. And we must worship him in spirit and in truth, not in form, not by some kind of an order. God wants worship from the heart. And only you can decide how he's going to get that and where and when he's going to get that. This passage does not mean that we should avoid worship in a physical place. That's perfectly fine if you want to do it. But if you depend upon a building in order to worship, then you have missed the point of what Jesus is teaching. What this means is we should not require worship in a particular place since God has not designated any place. It also means that we can worship God everywhere. No place is superior to another place. You can worship in a fishing boat or on a golf course, and I hope you will. Christians are urged to meet together, to encourage one another, but where they do it is immaterial. Don't call the church building the house of God. He doesn't live there. God lives in your body if you are a believer. And if you are not a believer, he doesn't live in you at all. Religions have holy places. The Jews have a holy place. It's the city of Jerusalem. And the Temple Mount is holy to those people because that's the place where Solomon's temple once stood. That's also a holy place for the Muslims. And they have Mecca as a holy place. And they think by making a pilgrimage to that city at least once in their lifetime that it will increase their chances to go to heaven. They have missed what the great prophet Jesus Christ taught. They call him a prophet. But they don't listen to that prophet. We call him the Son of God. And we believe in him and have eternal life. Well, we worship in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Now, secondly, Paul talked about that we glory in Christ Jesus. The true believer glories in what Christ Jesus did for him in his cross work. And he glories in who Jesus Christ is. 
He is our peace, our righteousness, our Lord and our God. And he is our blessed hope. He's our resurrection and the life. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. And First John chapter 2 verse 2 tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's our Jesus, in whom we glory. What is a propitiation? It means satisfactory sacrifice. And who did he satisfy? Not you. He satisfied God. He paid what God's holy law demanded. And he fulfilled that demand completely. There is no question as to whether God is satisfied. The important question is, are you satisfied? The Radio Bible Course is not my ministry alone. It is a ministry of scores of people who regularly send gifts to keep the program on the air, both in the Baton Rouge and New Orleans areas. They are people who believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, and they have enabled these faith-building broadcasts to reach thousands of people for more than ten years. All of their gifts are used for the expenses of this ministry. None is used for salaries or benefits to anyone. If you have been blessed by these Bible teaching broadcasts, won't you write and tell us about it? And when you write, ask for our free booklet entitled Heaven's Password. It will make clear what is needed in order to get to heaven. Ask for Heaven's Password. It's free. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.